Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hello, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, I'm speaking to author Mark Lechner, author of the book, The Mind, Brain, and Dreams, an Exploration of Dreaming, Thinking, and Artistic Creation, published in 2018 by Routledge. Mark Bletchner is a training and supervising psychoanalyst at William Allenson White Institute and has taught at Columbia, Columbia University, Yale University, and New York University. His prior books include Sex Changes, Transformations in Society and Psychoanalysis, published in 2009, The Dream Frontier, published in 2001, and Hope and Mortality, Psychodynamic Approaches to AIDS and HIV, published in 1997. He is former editor-in-chief of the journal Contemporary Psychoanalysis and a founder and former director of the HIV Clinical Service at the White Institute. Dr. Bletchner is in private practice in New York City as a psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, supervisor, and leader of private dream groups. And it's my personal pleasure to have him on the show because he's also my former supervisor at White Institute where I also trained, and my ongoing mentor and inspiration. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eugenio. I'm delighted to be with you. So to get a little bit of background on you, when did you become especially interested in dreams? Uh, that started when I was 15 years old. Uh, I was at a high school that uh, assigned summer reading, and our summer reading in that year was Freud's introductory lectures on psychoanalysis. And uh, as you know, that book has probably about five or six chapters on dream interpretation. And I was immediately fascinated by what Freud said about dreams. And I started writing down every dream that I had and trying to analyze it the way Freud did. So I would write down the dream and then write down all my associations and then try to figure out what the meaning of the dream was at that time. And I've been doing that ever since, which is now about 50 years. So do you do it every day? Well, I don't remember my dreams every day, mm -hmm. but every day that I remember a dream, I usually, if I, uh, when I wake up from it, I record it into a voice recorder. And then later I recorded it to my computer. So I now have a very large computer file of all my dreams since there were computers before that, I used to write them down longhand on paper. Mm. You know, there's something very personal about attending to one's dreams. And I don't mind sharing that when I think about my own dreams, I sometimes feel kind of scared or intimidated. Like, I'm not sure I want to know what they reveal. Have you ever felt this way about your dreams? Yes, for sure. I have. Uh, in uh, the dream frontier, I made up a word called onirophobia. <laughs> 
which is fear of one's own dreams. Mm -hmm. And I felt very strongly that most of us are afraid of our dreams. Uh, And in particular, sometimes you wake up from a dream and even if you don't know what it's about, you know that you have a kind of feeling of dread. And I, in particular with those dreams, try to go out of my way to write them down, even if I don't feel like it, because I I sense that in some way that dream is going to be important to me. So then how do you talk to people? Do you have a way of persuading people who are not very interested in their dreams or who have this phobia, as you call it, um, a way of persuading them to be interested in them and in, and in the value that, that attending to one's dreams um, can offer? Well, yes. Certainly in my clinical practice, uh, I tell people at the beginning of treatment that it will be helpful if they can remember their dreams and bring them in. So right away, they know that I'm interested in them. But I think uh, even, you know, if somebody doesn't bring any dreams into a treatment, that doesn't mean I can't do uh, psychotherapy or psychoanalysis with them. But I think once they bring in a dream and they've had the experience that something useful came out of it, they're much less afraid of their dreams. They're much more excited because they realize they're going to find things out about their dream, about their dreams and about themselves that they didn't know before. Um, certainly with my students who are training to become psychotherapists, and psychoanalysts, uh, I think very often when I teach a course on dream interpretation, there are some students in the class who always say, oh, none of my patients tell me dreams. And I always say to them, by the end of this course, they will. Mm-hmm. And it's because I think people, if they're afraid about dreams or they feel they don't know what to do with them, they transmit that anxiety to their patients. And so the patients either won't bring in dreams or they'll bring in one dream and get a feeling that they've just made their therapist anxious and won't bring in more of them. So the more people become more comfortable with their own dreams and working with dreams, the better it's going to be for their own patients to feel comfortable with their dreams. I wonder if a common anxiety underlying this phobia about dreams, though, is some kind of fear that a dream will reveal something about yourself or about your life that you don't really want to deal with. Is that something that you find or that you've heard before? Sure. There are some people where that's the case. Um, I think in the long run, even though people feel it's something they don't want to deal with, uh, they feel better once they've dealt with it. Uh, it's some sort of a matter of tact of being able to regulate their anxiety. So they're not so terrified Mm -hmm. that they won't even do an exploration. But I think that's another thing about the art of dream interpretation is timing. You know, the, the, the therapist doesn't have to tell the dreamer everything that they see about the dream right away. You can sort of, if you can sense that somebody's anxious about what's in the dream, you can sort of get to first some parts of the dream that are not as frightening. And once that happens, people will gradually open up. If you tell someone everything right away, you can scare them away. Mm -hmm. That's true. So about this book, this isn't actually the first time that you write about dreams. As I mentioned in the opening, your first book on dreams was called The Dream Frontier, and it was published in 2001. Why are you revisiting this topic now, 17 years later? Well, uh, actually, when I finished The Dream Frontier in 2001, uh, there were several topics in that book that I felt they could be taken further. And I, I wanted to take them further, but at the time, I just couldn't do it. 
and so I've been thinking about those particular questions for the last 16 years and working on them, discussing them with colleagues and with students and even with some of my relatives. And gradually over time, I've been able to develop those ideas. So for example, in the dream frontier at the end of chapter two, I mentioned how dreams sometimes take metaphors and combine them into a single dream image or create new metaphors. But I did spell out what some of those kind of combined metaphors are. And so in this new book, I have a chapter that when I leased the manuscript was a hundred pages about metaphor. And it talks about all kinds of metaphor, non-linguistic metaphor, musical metaphors, combined metaphors. I have one dream that has three metaphors combined in the dream image. So that was one of the topics that I developed. Um, there was another chapter in the book called Dreams and the Language of Thought. And that was the question that to me felt like the hardest question. And really, I would say this whole new book is about that subject. Can you say more about that? Yes. Well, I, there is a big question in philosophy and in cognitive neuroscience about this question about the language of thought. Uh, there's a question about what is going on in our mind brains when we are thinking. And it goes back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, you know, Socrates felt that when we think, really what we're doing is having an internal dialogue. He thought that thought was just a, a speech that we have within ourselves. And Aristotle said, no, that's wrong. Aristotle thought that there is some other language of thought that's not words, that's not speech, that underlies all of our thinking. And those two points of view have been debated really for now thousands of years. Uh, and most recently, there was a book called The Language of Thought that actually asked that question about, is there an underlying language of thought just like there is, you know, when computers operate, uh, even though we look at our screen and we may see words or numbers, the underlying uh, computer language is just a series of zeros and ones. And so there's been a question of whether the brain, the mind brain has some kind of underlying language like that. And I've been working on this for a long time. Freud said that he talked about that most of our thinking is done in words. It's as if our thoughts are like sentences and that when we dream, the mind brain takes these sentences and transforms them into images. Um, I'm now, after many years of thinking about this and doing lots of thinking and research when some kinds of informal experiments, I think the, it may be exactly the opposite of what Freud thought. I now think that the images and emotions that we see in dreams may in fact be the language of thought, that our thinking occurs in pictures, not in words. And that what the thinking that we then do is we have to figure out what our mind brains have already worked out in pictures. And I'm not alone in this idea. Al, um, Albert Einstein said that he thought that was how he discovered relativity, that his mind brain worked out the theory of relativity, and then he consciously had to figure out what had already been worked out unconsciously in images. So I want to make sure that 
I'm getting the idea because it, it did jump out to me as one of the important sort of core ideas of the book upon which you build um, in talking about dreams. It, it seems like you're basically saying that there's there was this notion with Freud that our our mind brain, and I, in a minute I want you to tell us what you mean by that, that it's sort of raw material is verbal and that our dream images are sort of a transformation of that raw verbal material of those raw verbal thoughts. But you're, you're suggesting the reverse that the, the thoughts that we have and that we know in verbal form are actually an interpretation of some kind of deeper nonverbal language that our mind brain uses. I think you called it the substrate of thought. Am I getting it right? You are getting absolutely right. I, I, I went from this familiar phrase of the language of thought to substrate of thought. And the reason I did that was because language, the word language implies to most people words. And uh, even though a lot of these uh, books that have been written about the language of thought talk about thinking happening without words and some kind of either images or what they sometimes call mentalese, uh, I figured the word language is going to skew the way people think about it. So I'd rather say substrate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then let's talk about how that relates to the way that we understand dreams, because many people, when they think of their dreams, they think of the images in their dreams, and there may not be that much verbal language in the dreams. A lot, there are a lot of pictures and places and people and objects. So are you suggesting that that's not some sort of mush or some sort of um, messy transformation of some kind of clean verbal thoughts the brain is having, but that in fact, that's the raw material itself, or we're seeing evidence of the raw material itself? Yes, I, that's absolutely right. You know, Freud thought that the reason uh, our dreams are transformed from verbal thoughts into images and emotions is for the purposes of disguise. He's thought that our dreams have some kind of taboo material in them. And the, in order for us to stay asleep, if the mind brain transforms those, those taboo thoughts into some kind of disguised material, then we won't wake up. But actually, I think people who work with dreams a lot realize more and more that they're not really all that disguised. I don't think that the form dreams have is for the purpose of disguise. I think when we dream, we're seeing how the mind brain works when it's not trying to communicate its thoughts. Dreams show thoughts in their raw form that don't, aren't in a communicable form. And then our consciously, when we want to communicate our ideas, then we have to turn those kinds of thoughts into sentences that can be understood by other people. But when we interpret our dreams, then are we going against the nature of our thoughts? I mean, if you're saying that though, that, that, that substrate of thought is not necessarily meant to be understood in verbal terms or communicable, are we sort of, I don't know, invading the privacy of that part of our mind brains? No, I, I don't think so. I think uh, the, it's, the thoughts are not there to be hidden. That's not why they're in that form. They're just in that form because that's how the mind brain works when it's not trying to communicate its thoughts. 
what you just said really does agree with Freud's idea that the dreams contain taboo thoughts that we don't want to know about. And so mm. when we interpret them, we're going against those forces. I don't think that that's the primary uh, uh, dynamics that are going on in dream interpretation. You're using the term mind brain. Can you take a moment to explain that term? Yes. Uh, I'm glad you asked that because uh, the words mind and brain have been separated for a long time, at least since the time of Descartes. Most philosophy has accepted the idea that there is that the brain is the physical organ that we have in our heads and the mind is somehow to be conceptually separated from the brain. Uh, and that's been going on now for hundreds of years. But in the last century, I would say more and more cognitive neuroscientists have realized that that separation of those two processes is really somewhat forced. And but they so people have talked about the mind brain in before me but they always put in a piece of punctuation between the mind and brain sometimes they put in a hyphen sometimes they put in a slash the closest that anyone came to this was Jacques Pancep, who wrote mind brain as one word but used a capital m and then in the middle of the word there was a capital b hmm. so i think that the words that we use shape our thoughts and the fact that we keep using either mind and brain as separate words or putting in punctuation between them keeps the idea of dualism alive and it causes problems in our work. So I, I in the dream frontier, this is another thing that I developed. In the dream frontier, I asked the question, you know, what is there some word that we can substitute for mind and brain uh, that will bring them together. And I said, maybe someone will someday say my brawn or something like that. And then I thought, why not just say mind brain, just put them together as a single word. And it sounds like something so simple. It, sh it shouldn't be that complicated, but people have been really surprised when they read the book, they say, Oh, who made up this word? This is really an interesting way to talk about it. And I'm hoping that by the time someone reads the whole book, they start to feel more comfortable thinking of the mind and brain as a single unit. So I want to go back to the idea of dreams. If you're, if you think of the mind as a brain as one unit, then how does that shape or change the way that you think about dreams? Well, I think uh, it's a, that's a very good question because up till now, in the scientific study of dreams, there have been people who specialize more in the particular brain functions. I'm going to use the word separately at this moment, but there are people who look at neurotransmitters that uh, shift during sleep and uh, neurological organization that shifts during sleep. And then there are people who study dreams more phenomenologically. And I guess you would say they are focusing more on the mind, on, as Freud did, looking at what forces, what psychological forces and resistances go into the creation of dreams and shape how they are formed. And I would say in most of my career, and especially starting with the book, The Dream Frontier, I've tried to bring those two areas of study together. I think it's very important 
that psychoanalysts who hear more dreams every day probably than anyone in our society not only look at dreams for how they can help understand their patients, but look at dreams for the kinds of properties that there are in them and that those findings be transmitted to people who are doing neuroscientific studies so that it can shape the way they do their research. So in a way, I'm trying to bring the mind and the brain together in research and have the people who focus more on one side or the other pay attention to what people who are looking at the other side are doing. And if you think of the mind-brain as a unit, you are almost compelled to bring those two points of view together. One of the things that I find most interesting about your approach to dreams is your belief that they are sometimes quite undisguised, maybe literal, that you assume oftentimes that something true is represented in the dream. And that kind of differs from the popular idea that, as we mentioned before, dreams are meant to be interpreted. Uh, And I think you suggest that therapists ask their patients, has anything like that ever happened to you actually in your life? How, How did you stumble upon that observation? And can you say more about what you mean by that? Yes. Well, I stumbled on it, I think, just by my nature. I happen to be a very concrete person. So uh, (laughs) even though I learned all these elaborate techniques of dream interpretation, it occurred to me that maybe before you start interpreting and coming up with other meanings, you find out whether just what's happening in the dream is somehow very true. So I ask patients very often, Have you ever experienced what happened in a dream or something like it? And I was surprised how often they brought up something. And the thing that they brought up was often much more anxiety provoking than the kinds of things that came out of the standard psychoanalytic dream interpretation. So I think in the book, I have one example of a woman who had a dream in which she was, uh, she was suspended in a public bathroom. She was holding onto the wall, suspended over the toilet, and she was having very painful bowel movements. And she took the dream before she told me about it and told it to one of her friends who was in psychoanalytic treatment. And the friend said, well, the dream is showing how you're having very painful feelings that you're finding difficult to get out in your analysis. And that's that's a very kind of classical psychoanalytic dream interpretation. And it certainly, it was true of her. She was having painful feelings that she was finding hard to talk about. But I said to her, well, are you having any painful bowel movements? And in fact, it turned out that she was having painful bowel movements every morning for quite some time. And she had never gone to a doctor to find out about it. And I suggested to her that she do so She resisted it, but eventually she did go, and it turned out she had pancreatic cancer. So I think that's a good example of how the the direct content of the dream can bring up something that is very significant that the person is not paying attention to, but it doesn't require interpretation. It just requires pointing it out, paying attention to it, and doing something about it. Your book addresses, though, why our dreams sometimes are not so clear cut and don't even make sense. Would it make sense 
in real life. And I think a lot of our listeners might be wondering when they have such dreams, dreams with people that don't really exist or in places they've never been to or with objects that either they've never seen or they wouldn't even make sense in waking life. They probably want to know, well, why, why am I having those dreams? And a lot of people, I think, resort to explanations about, well, the brain is just kind of taking out the trash or it's just, it's just random images. It's not meant to be paid attention to. What's, what's your take on those kinds of images? Well, I think Freud was right about one thing, that, that people can have resistances to seeing what is right there in the dream. So when people say, this makes absolutely no sense to me, I've never seen anything like it, I can't connect it with anything that's important to me, I think they're really honestly feeling that way. Uh, but if you do good work with dreams, I think they will very quickly realize there's much more to it than they thought. So for example, I run... Uh, regular dream groups. And in that kind of dream group, we have seven or eight people all associating to the dreamer's dream. And a lot of times a dreamer will come in and say, I had a dream and it's really boring or really stupid or is really has no meaning. And within a few minutes, when other people start to talk about their dreams, they realize there's something very significant there that they hadn't been paying attention to. Um, for example, in one of my dream groups, somebody came in and said, oh, I had the most just boring, long dream where I just kept going over my papers over and over and over. And uh, somebody in the dream group said, oh, that is kind of boring. <laughs> it was very funny. But then as they were discussing the dream, all of a sudden, one of the people in the dream group said, you know, when you say my papers, it reminds me of these old World War II movies where people, the, you know, the, the interrogator says, show me your papers. And suddenly the dreamer realized that he was a child of Holocaust survivors and had spent 10 years trying to debate about whether he should accept uh, citizenship from Germany and had been agonizing over this and had just recently gotten that citizenship. And he had been looking at those papers and had tremendous conflictual feelings about them. So all of a sudden, something that seemed boring to him and to everyone else, suddenly with that one insight, took on a whole new meaning. And he felt suddenly that the dream was tremendously significant. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the phenomenon of condensation as it operates in dreams and the different kinds. What is condensation? What, what does that refer to in, in dreams? Well, condensation refers to the way that the mind brain can put things, two different things or three different things together into a single object. Um, there are many different kinds of condensation. I would say it's one of the core aspects of what Freud observed about dreams. So, for instance, a lot of mythological creatures, which people think started in dreams, combine two kinds of animals. You know, we have the minotaur, which is a combination of man and a bull, and there are many other combined animals. So that's one kind of condensation. Sometimes people also put two different, the features of two different people together in a single image. So you may have somebody with the face of my father, except that instead of having black hair, he has red curly hair. And then the dreamer has to think, 
well, who has red curly hair and what are the characteristics of these two people telling me about either my father or the other person or some other person in my life? So that's another kind of condensation. Sometimes dreams make up new words. Freud has a lot of examples of that in the interpretation of dreams, but they're mostly German words. But I think uh, people often make up a new word in English, I guess in a certain way, the mind brain is a condensation. It's taking two words and putting them together. And you came up with a, well, I don't know if you came up with this word, but you introduced us to the term interobjects, which I think refers to a particular kind of condensation that everyone can relate to, which is, um, it's, it's like where something doesn't really make sense in waking life. I don't know if, uh, if this would be an example, but you know, I think a lot of people have experience of dreaming, say, of a house. And they say, well, it was my house. I knew it was my house, but it didn't look like my house in real life. Um, or maybe there's, it's, it's a kind of physical object that doesn't exist in real life. Why does the mind brain do this? And what would be a useful way to think about those images if, if one dreams them? Well, yeah. Uh, first of all, let me say, I did make up the name interobject. I didn't make up the concept. Okay. Freud, Freud called them partial condensations. And in an interobject, the person says it was something between one object and another object. Alan Hobson had a dream in which there was something between a paint frozen hinge and a lock. Now, if you think about those two objects, uh, you could think about they're both things that allow something to stay open or closed. A paint frozen hinge stays closed, but it's kind of seen as a malfunction, whereas a lock is seen as the normal, uh, the normal function of uh, keeping a door open or closed. So when somebody says it's something between something and something else, it's something we all know we do in dreams, and we don't do it in waking life. If we did it in waking life, people would probably think we're a little crazy. They say, well, which is it? I know there's in, in my book, I have an example of a child who had a, he said, we were in the ocean and we were afraid we were going to drown. And then we were saved by a seal boat. A seal boat came up to us and saved us. And the father who's, you know, children are much more accepting of interobjects than adults are in their waking life. And the father said after a long discussion, well, so it sounds like it was a big boat. And the son said, it was a boat, but it was also a seal. And so in a certain way, uh, that's the kind of thing that we can do in dreams. And it, in waking life, we tend not to do it because it sounds like we're making things up. But if you think about dreams as thinking that we do without having to have the thoughts be communicable, then suddenly you can find a way that interobjects are very important because what they do is they take different objects that are in the world and show how they are part of a single category, how they are related. So my favorite interobject is a woman who had a dream in which there was what she called a cell phone baby. And as soon as I heard that, I sort of did a little bit of a laugh because I think all of us suddenly realize when we hear a cell phone baby that there are ways that 
babies and cell phones are similar. You know, they're very small. We hold them close. We speak to them in very closely. And they sometimes make noise when we least expect it and they embarrass us in public. So I think that that, that example of an inter-object shows how this dreamer's mind brain noticed the commonality between cell phones and babies, which in waking life she might not have paid attention to. Well, what, why should she pay attention to it? Or, or maybe a better way of asking it is, what is what was there for her to learn uh-huh. from that image? Well, I think that's that's a great question. That's what I that's I personally think that dreams allow us to have brand new thoughts, and in a way, in that interobject of the cell phone baby, she was suddenly having the realization uh, that oh. Cell phones and babies are very similar. And I feel similarly to my baby and my cell phone. And normally Mm. in waking life, I wouldn't notice how those two things, cell phones and babies, are maybe even part of a single category. But in my mind brain, maybe my unconscious mind brain, they are a single category. And other people have that category as well. Because when I tell them, that interobject, they usually laugh and smile with a sense of realization. And that's one of the things that I think is very important about dreams. Dreams allow us to have really new thoughts in things that we wouldn't be able to think of in our waking life, because there is this possibility of making connections between things that in our waking life we see as totally separate and distinct. I do you think? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I I call this my theory of oniric Darwinism. Oniric is related to dreams, and it, Darwinism mm-hmm. uh, connects to the way Darwin saw that evolution happened. I think, in a certain way, dreams show the evolution of thinking. That just like in the theory of evolution, we can have random thoughts that are allowed to emerge during our dreams, and if they're useful, we can bring them into our waking life, and if they're not useful they're not particularly fit we just discard them was this was this cell phone baby i mean i don't know how much um more story there is to this this particular vignette but was this a uh, cell phone baby image useful to her or or did it lead to some kind of um new thought in her waking life that, that mattered to her uh, you know, it's been so long now, I'm not sure I'm remembering exactly, but I think it did, it was useful to her in that it allowed her to realize her ambivalent feelings towards her own baby. On one hand, she loved the baby. She was felt very tenderly towards it. She held it close to her. But at the other hand, you know, her baby would sometimes act up and she'd be in a public meeting and suddenly the baby would start crying and she'd be terribly embarrassed. And, you know, in a way that's similar to when you're in a public meeting and you forgot to turn the ringer off on your cell phone and you're suddenly embarrassed and you want to run out of the room or rush to try to get it quiet. So I think that that was a useful uh, insight that she got from that dream. You also mentioned the beginning of our discussion, metaphor, and you get into that in the book. What What is the role of metaphor in dreams? Oh boy! Well, that's a that's an enormous question. Uh, uh, I would say, first of all, in uh, traditional psychotherapeutic and psychoanalytic interpretation of dreams, there are certain metaphors 
that had been very commonly used. So for example, Freud's whole theory of symbolism was a kind of metaphor theory. He was basically saying that we take the shapes of our different body parts and notice their connection in the real world of inanimate objects. And so very often we represent these body parts with objects in the world. And that's a kind of metaphor because you're transferring Mm -hmm. properties from the inanimate world, from the animate world into the inanimate world and vice versa. Um, And so, so like a gun symbolizing a penis, that type of thing, right? A gun symbolizing a penis, And actually that's a very, the reason it's very important in dreams is that there are many possibilities for what kind of things can symbolize a penis, you know, almost anything long and thin or long and straight uh, turns in turns out to symbolize a penis. It can be a gun, it can be a broomstick, it can be a cigar, it can be a snake. And so one of the things Jung said was that after you've interpreted what that symbol means, then you go back and ask, yeah, but why, why that particular object and not another object? So for instance, mm-hmm. snakes are alive and they're dangerous and they can be poisonous, whereas a cigar... People put it in their mouths and it tastes good to them. And, you know, a sword is, is aggressive and can be damaging to other people. All, each one of those specific properties tells you something about how the person feels about uh, the, the, their penis. And I think something very similar goes on uh, with a lot of the basic Freudian symbols. Uh, you know, Freud said that bags, anything that was an enclosed space uh, could symbolize either the vagina or the womb. So uh, I think one of the things that looking at the specificity of these different metaphors has allowed us to understand dreams much better. So for example, uh, I was at a conference and someone presented a dream in which a woman was riding on a motorcycle sitting behind her brother and things were falling out of her bag. And I suddenly realized, well, if you think about the bag as symbolizing a womb, what does it mean specifically for this person to dream that things were falling out of her bag? And so I really suddenly intuited that it had to do either with a miscarriage or with an abortion. And it turned out that the dream did actually, the dreamer had had an abortion and it had a big effect on her life. So I, okay. Uh, oh no, go ahead. I just, so I just want to say that I think that, you know, it's not enough to look at just simple metaphors, but you have to look very closely at all the details. If you really want to understand what the dream shows about the dreamer's way of thinking about the world. And actually in that spirit, I was wondering if your idea would suggest that we should also be thinking about, well, why a motorcycle? You know, why not a horse or a bicycle or a car with things flying out the window? That's a very um, good question. Is that, is that a line of inquiry you would follow? I didn't follow. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a dream of one of my own patients, a dream of somebody else's patient, and I didn't follow it. But you're absolutely right. That's, that's a very good question. I'm, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, my first thought is motorcycles <laughs> are dangerous. They're certainly more dangerous than cars. Yeah. And she... So in a certain sense, you could say that she's in this stream thinking about how risky was it to have this abortion. And you also could say, well, Mm -hmm. she's 
she's not driving the motorcycle. She's just sitting on it. The male is the person right. who's driving. So then you'd want to wonder specifically about how much did she feel she was passive in this decision about the abortion and how much was the man involved, the one who made the decision? That would be another question you could ask. Um, I mean, you could go on and on in that way. And I, But that's exactly the kind of question that I think people who do good work with dreams, they just keep asking more and more why this detail and not a different one. There's also something kind of rebellious, I think, about motorcycles, um, or at least that's my association to them. The people who, who get motorcycles sometimes get motorcycles against the objections of their loved ones who say, oh my God, please don't. The motorcycle, they're so unsafe. So there's something a little badass about them, you know, um, or at least uh, transgressive. That's true. And I think if you had been there when this dream was told, you would have brought that up. And you might be absolutely right. Although that's one of the things where it is really useful to find out from the dreamer what they're own experience of motorcycles is because, you know, it could be they come from a place where there's very small roads and people don't drive cars. Motorcycles are the only way to go. Uh, but you're in general, in mm -hmm. our culture, I think what you said is true. Yeah, I was, I was thinking the same thing that there's a cultural element because in, you know, you go to France or you go to Italy and there's motorcycle or at least everywhere, mopeds right. everywhere. <laughs> and there's, there's nothing particularly sexy about it. You know, this makes me think of another point that you address in the book, which is, and, and another way in which you kind of challenge Freud, which is in taking up the idea of associations, so listening the dreamers' associations. You make the point in the book that in interpreting a dream or trying to use or work with a dream, you don't need to necessarily solicit the patient's associations. Well, what comes to mind when you think of this or that? And you even illustrate it with some examples from your own individual work or your work with groups. Can you tell us about this part of your, uh, your conception? Yes, yes I could. I mean, uh, you're right. Freud said that we have to get the dreamers associations to each element of the dream and then transform the dream into its latent content. And, you know, when I was 15 and first starting my work with dreams, I did exactly what Freud said. And I took it as given that uh, he was right. But over the years, I've discovered that the more, you know, very often a person will tell their dream and then they'll tell their associations. And I have to say, people who are in training then feel this tremendous performance anxiety. Okay, now I've heard the associations. Now I've got to figure out the latent meaning of the dream. And people don't usually snap to finding the latent meaning of the dream. And sometimes they come up with a latent meaning that's very clever, but as I said before, it may not be the most anxiety-provoking or most important meaning of the dream. So over the years, I've become less dependent on associations. I still use them. And, you know, the question you just asked before about is a motorcycle something dangerous and badass and rebellious. I think that's a good example where it would be helpful to know from the dreamer what mo motorcycles means for him or her. Uh, that That's one of those things you don't want to just project what your attitude towards motorcycles is. Uh, but that's different than saying that you have to basically, you must have the associations or you can't do any meaningful work with the dream. So if you're not gathering associations, what are you doing 
I mean, what, what do you literally do with a patient when they tell you a dream? Well, there are many things. I would say there, <laughs> there's so many things you could do. I mean, you know, I give a 15-week course on that, and even that doesn't cover all the material. Um, it really depends on the dream. But I think what you most want to be able to do when someone tells you a dream is get a good dialogue going. And I think if you hear somebody's dreams, rather than just routinely and rotely collecting associations to every element of the dream, it's much more effective if you listen to the dream and you can ask the dreamer one good question that makes them pay attention to some aspect of the dream that they haven't been paying attention to or makes them think about some area of their life that is connected with the dream. So, you know, the, one of the techniques that Freud suggested was asking the dreamer what happened the day before they had the dream. And that was a, a different kind of way of approaching the dream. It's saying, maybe this dream is connected with things in your real life. So let's just look at what's going on in your real life right now. And let's see if we can make some connections. Personally, rather than just say, what happened to you the day before you had the dream? I would rather ask a more specific question that somehow may connect a very particular detail of the dream with what happened the day before. But that's, you know, go ahead. Well, so I, I guess then you don't want, it sounds like you don't want readers to take all that you say about rebuses and metaphors and symbols and all the different ways in which they can maybe be decoded or understood differently. It sounds like you don't, if I hear you right, you don't want readers to take that to mean that we should approach dreams in this kind of mathematical uh, way in which as so we're trying to crack some sort of code or solve some sort of puzzle. Right now, you seem to be suggesting a, a gentler approach. Is that is that a correct understanding of what you're saying? Um, I, it's correct. I would rather than say gentler, I'd rather say all-encompassing and multifarious. Mm -hmm. I really feel like, you know, when you listen to dreams, I listen for metaphors. I look for rebuses. I look for symbols. I look for correspondences in the person's real life. I feel like all those things are possibilities. And I think anyone who works well with dreams learns all of them, but then rather than applying them as in any kind of strict technical way, let's the dream itself sort of lead the way into how you approach the dream. I have a chapter in the book, chapter 13, called The Dream Guides Its Own Interpretation. And in there, I show how with, you know, I don't remember how, uh, maybe seven or eight different dreams, I can go about working with it completely differently. So in one example, a person told me a dream, and then in the next few sessions, acted in a very real way, acted out things that were somehow symbolized in the dream. And so there, the task was to make the connection between how he had acted it out and then reflecting back on what the dream meant for him. So the subtitle of the book is An Exploration of Dreaming, Thinking, and Artistic Creation. What is the link between artistic creation and dreams? Well, first of all, many artists... Uh, have said that they've gotten inspiration for their dream, for their work from their dreams. Uh, uh, but more, more precisely, I think that the kinds of things that artists do, where they take aspects of the world and recombine them and recreate them, 
are very much reflective of the kinds of processes that go on in our dreams. Even people who are not artists have dreams that work on the material of the world in a very artistic way. So symbolists, there are artists who function a lot with symbolism, most of the surrealists did, but they, they are relying on processes that we really can see in everybody's psychology in their dreams. Can you, do you have an example of how that works in a person who doesn't identify as an artist? Oh gosh. Uh, there's, there's so many now I'm, I'm blacking on them <laughs> in the moment. Uh, uh, but you're, you're, you're saying, you know, what you're saying is that it's, this process, this mental process, it's, it's one that artists tap into, but it's not only available to artists, that all, all of our mind brains work in, work in this yes. way. Yes. I think artists have particular access to these kinds of dreamlike processes in their waking life. But yes, I think we all have them. So uh, I think I, I just thought of one example. Uh, I had a patient who had a dream which had the words, Prestel Dolby. Uh, that's all the dream was. It just had mm. those two words. And I thought, I don't know what that is. I thought of Dolby noise reduction. And then he told me, uh, no, it turned, it was a press the till Dolby yours. And then we still didn't know what that meant exactly. He said it had something to do with slot machines. You know, you press the till and you can get the cash back. Uh, but then much later after he had that dream, he was in, in a session and he suddenly started to move his fingers as if he was playing the piano. And I said, oh, what, is, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm playing the piano. I said, what does that mean to you? And it turned out in his background, playing the piano meant uh, if you had a cash register in an old time store, if you pushed the keys, the register would open up and you could steal money. So that somehow through the process of the combination of the words and the physical action allowed us to connect back to an experience he had had with that whole issue of stealing money from the cash register. So that's a kind of way that all the different senses, your fingers, words, images, emotions, all get pulled together into a single dream image. Wow. You know, I'm thinking about listeners who have listened to this interview and maybe they were never interested in their dreams before, but they're very curious and interested about them now. Should they start journaling their dreams starting tomorrow morning? I recommend it to everyone. I think it's just a wonderful thing to do, but you have to be careful. Don't expect you're going to journal your dream tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon, you're going to understand your dream. Very often, uh, it takes a lot longer and it helps a lot if you feel comfortable showing your dream to somebody else and getting their thoughts about it. Don't stick only with your own thoughts. Uh, in fact, the more people you can feel comfortable showing your dream to, the more you'll probably get a deep understanding of it. And also, even though you may be afraid to show it to other people, once you've had the experience of having your dream really clarified by this kind of feedback, you'll start to feel much less worried and secretive about your dreams. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Mark, we're almost out of time. Before we go, though, do you want to tell us what you're working on next? 
Mix, well, I'm not sure. You know, I just got this book finished, but I'm already been thinking that the next book I want to write is a follow-up on Frida from Reichman's book, Principles of Intensive Psychotherapy. I'd like to write, I used to think that was a classic and I assigned it to all my beginning students who wanted to understand how to work with psychodynamic principles. And I reread it just two weeks ago. And even though it is an extraordinary book, it's really quite dated. And I realize somebody has to write a new version of it. And so one of the things I'm hoping for I'd like anyone who's anyone in the field, um, or especially people who are young in the field, to formulate questions to people who say, you know, there's, there, I've never seen anyone write about this subject, or I've never read an article about that subject. Somehow when people ask me to write about something, it always comes out much more interesting than if I just came up with it on my own. So I'm hoping to make this book a kind of community project and Anyone who has an idea about something they'd like to see written about, send me an email and I'll write it. And hopefully that'll make this next book. What's your email address? My email address is (laughs) M-A-R-K at Mark Bleschner, M-A-R-K-B-L-E-C-H-N-E-R.com. Well, I hope people take you up on the offer. I I guess before we wrap up, I I can't help but ask if there's something about Frida from Reichman in particular. Because there are lots of primers out there. Is there something about her in particular that makes you, made you assign her to all of your students and that you feel worthy of elaborating on her ideas? Yes, I would say there were several things. For one thing, uh, you know, she referred to her book kind of contemptuously as a cookbook because it really was so concrete and clear in the way that cookbooks are. And, And so, you know, a lot of people who write about psychotherapy tend to get much more abstract. So I really love the fact that she is so clear in how she works. I would say the second thing is she, even though she talks over and over about interpretation, very often what she does is not really interpretation, but what I call intervention. She often doesn't say to her patients, what you're, this is what, what you're doing means, or this is the reason that you're doing what you're doing. She often perceives that, but then she says something instead to the patient that makes the patient feel good and allows the patient to use what she say to go off in a completely different direction. And the third thing I would say is she worked with everybody. You know, she worked with people who were really psychotic and she worked with people who had this more typical neuroses and she kind of developed principles for working with everyone in a pretty much the same way. And I think that was in a very basic thing about recognizing that we're all human and we all have some kinds of similarities that we can be, that can be worked with. Well, thank you for mentioning the book. I, I, I want to check it out. I've not read it and I hope other people do too. And we look forward to your, your take on her ideas or to your next thank book. You. Thank you. I look forward to them too. And I hope for as much collaboration from people out there as I can get. Thank you. Yeah. So everybody write to Mark and Mark, thank you again for being on the show. Great. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Take care.
This is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. I hope that you enjoyed the interview that you just listened to, and I also hope that you'll keep letting me know who you would like to hear on the show next or what books in psychology you're reading. To let me know, go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact. Until next time, have a great week.